Hi, my name is uh, Lisa and I'm a social scientist from Vienna and I think an LC expert um, is often seen as a patch um, for projects from the natural sciences that you can ask this LC expert anything that has to be solved in a way and it has to be a yes or no answer and then it's done and then you never have to talk about it again. Welcome to this special episode of the BBMRI ERIC podcast. My name is Eleanor Schember, Head of Outreach, Education and Communications at BBMRI. This podcast comes to you from Vienna, Austria, where we are recording at the annual LC National Node Expert Meeting. Whilst it may be annual, due to the pandemic, this is the first time everyone has been together in person for almost three years. You'll be hearing from the headquarters LC team and the experts from around Europe who will be talking about why LC matters and the major messy topics that are their core research focus now and are set to define the coming year. First, I think it's helpful to define what LC means for those not in the business. LC stands for ethical, legal and societal issues and relates to the thorny considerations that surround life science research and innovation. It is critical to do it right for research infrastructures. Any kind of research that involves people, whether they're at the top of their game or vulnerable, cannot happen without considering the potential related bearing on their rights, whether it's the ethics of carrying out the research, how it sits legally, and that includes the data used or produced, and the knock-on societal impact. Rather than listen to me feeling a way through what Elsie means, it's better to ask an expert, and who better to help than Dr. Michaela Mehofer, Head of Elsie Services and Research here at BBMRI, Eric. Michaela, thanks for sparing some time. <laughs> Hello, wonderful to be here. Michaela, before we get into anything else... This is probably quite a difficult question, but let's do it. Define what LC means. <laughs> um, this is um, an interesting question. The uh, LC uh, stands for Ethical, Legal and Societal Issues. And um, it can also stand for uh, Ethical, Legal and uh, Societal Implications, sometimes also Social Implications. And it already shows in the definition the messiness of it all. Uh, and therein lies the beauty, because it showcases that uh, to address them, we have to address the context, we have to address um, the topics of the day at hand, the ethical requirements, uh, the legal landscape, and the society at large. And at this very meeting, uh, we had some further discussion what ELSI uh, actually means, and that we should reinterpret the I, uh, not only with issues or implications, uh, but also interdisciplinary and international. We need, we need the globe. Now, the LC unit uh, of BBMRI ERIC was from the start building on a core team at the headquarters and then together with the brain power from LC experts from the member and observer countries to provide tailored guidance, conducting original research and enhancing the knowledge and particularly our uh, very own knowledge base, an online platform on items uh, and topics relevant for the biobanks and the life sciences. That is, 
by banking with children, the ethics of artificial intelligence, gender issues in biomedical research, just to name a few. And the most prominent, or one of the most prominent, remains the proper implementation of the GDPR. Thanks so much for that. When you imagine a team, you picture people in the same place or same space beavering away together, but actually this couldn't be further from the truth. Elsie operates as a network with our in-house team, who aren't actually all in the same physical space, as well as our national node experts spread across the continent. Explain to the listener, how do you work and who is an Elsie expert? Mm. First of all, I believe that there is no such person like an LC expert. Nobody knows it all. Nobody is a jack of all trades. However, together we can provide LC expertise and as a team we are LC experts plural. That interdisciplinarity brings it nicely together and uh, from within BBMRI we are nine people at the headquarters plus more than 30 experts from the national nodes. And then the expertise comes from law, ethics, philosophy and if we go down within bioethics, some work uh, have a speciality on engagement activities, others in IP rights and so on and so forth. So actually, Elsie is a crucial aspect to any project because it's crossing over into so many disciplines. So right from the start, when ideas are forming, it's critical to get you in, isn't it? Rather than a sticking plaster when researchers hit a thorny issue. Mm, That's indeed very true. It is critical to have a conversation because the interdisciplinarity is not only there within LC, it goes beyond to IT, quality, the life sciences, and so on and so forth again. Most importantly, I would say, is the inclusion of uh, patient advocacy groups and the citizens that, same as us, those are included very early on and uh, not in a fig leaf scenario or a checklist scenario. We tick box that everything is fine now, but in a sense of a dialogue because, as in any relationship, you obviously go in without with your own assumptions but without really knowing what the reactions from the other side are and if you're properly ready for it you will come up uh, with something even more powerful than you uh, at the start had imagined or simply overlooked by your own limited minds uh, the possibilities that are uh, currently there due to the budget but Well, when people talk together, we might disagree, that's okay, but if we have a common goal, we find a way. Thank you for that really helpful introduction, Michaela. We've established what ELSI is and why the team's work matters, and it does, for researchers within our member states, but also for the EU projects that need an ELSI angle, and I'm going to explore that in a little bit. My name is Olga Zorzatu. I'm from Athens, Greece, from the Greek BBMRI GR node. And uh, I guess an LC expert for me is a person who loves to navigate among different disciplinaries and always learn new stuff about sciences and yeah, tackle the ethical, legal and social issues. Michaela painted a picture of what ELSI is and how this network of experts operates around Europe. 
Let's meet Melanie Goisov, who is senior scientist, and Kaya Ukyu, scientist for ELSI. Their specialisms are governance frameworks, the ethics of artificial intelligence, and sex and gender issues. Kaya, Elsie deals with such wide-ranging issues. Can you explain, and I appreciate this isn't an easy question to answer, can you explain why what you do matters? So Elsie matters a lot because it is looking at problems that relate to uh, societal issues, ethical issues and uh, legal issues in a way that not a single scientist or a scholar can look at. It is combining all these different perspectives and uh, in that sense what I do matters uh, first of all for me because uh, I'm also a participant in research projects, I'm also a citizen whose data is being used. So asking these questions makes sense to critically think about the infrastructures that are built around, for example, data samples, but also the technologies that are currently in use or imagined by the developers like engineers and scientists. So what I do matters in the sense that I try to critically think about important issues for biobanks, for life science researchers, for medicine, but also the other stakeholders like the participants in research or those who are uh, treated at hospitals or the companies themselves who are producing those technologies. Thank you, Kaya. That's really helpful. You've described how Elsie weaves a path through a multitude of considerations and different interest groups that come up in research. Also, the role that that has in policy formation and innovation and how it should be informed by findings and people. So with that comes consensus from communities. Melanie, the question is, who benefits from the work that Elsie does? So when we talk about projects and we talk about stakeholders and all of that, what does it mean? Uh, Let me rephrase this question a little bit (laughs) into... Um, how to make sure that all or uh, societal groups or uh, many actors benefit from technologies or medical intervention and so on, and uh, how to make sure that benefits are shared equally. I would say that's the question also what Kaya said before about these technologies and all the stakeholders involved. For example, uh, for artificial intelligence, We need to make sure that the data set that we use to train AI represents all societal groups because it will have then impacts in um, the real world applications and also what it means in research settings, in the clinic, so all the stakeholders involved. And as I said, the question is how can we as LC people or social scientists in our case help to identify the benefits point out the the risks as well, because this also comes with the question of benefits. And um, how can we contribute to better or more more equal sharing of these benefits? Can you give me an example from one of your most recent projects where you can describe who benefited from Elsie's work? I mean, I'm involved mostly now in uh, projects around artificial intelligence and we are quite at the start, so we will see. So we are now really there at the right time to see how the technology is being developed and what it means and how the conversation and decision-making is going around that. So 
to say how already how it impacted it. We'll, I would say we will see. Of course, there are already some applications, but there is more discussion, more hype around it about potential benefits uh, than we can really observe from in a kind of in the field. There are, of course, already some, but it's too early to give a, a good overview. And as I said, like the research projects are at the beginning, so we will see. So I know researchers really prefer to have data and results, and AI is still in its infancy around health. But it is such a massive topic this year. What aspect is going to be the biggest focus for your work for 2023? I think we have different foci here. Uh, some of the things that we share with Melanie focus on how data, how different sources of data are used in building AI algorithms. But the way that we are looking at these in different research projects makes evident some of the issues that we do not see in a single project. Like I'm interested in polygenic risk scores, so genomics research, and how AI is uh, in use. And I will talk about that a little bit. Uh, and Melanie maybe can talk about imaging, medical imaging specifically. So for polygenic risk scores, these are scores that tell uh, individuals their risks for a specific disease or condition, like certain types of cancer or diabetes. And we see that uh, in the horizon, there's a lot of opportunities for individuals who have the capacity to make use of the AI and also the emerging data, especially like electronic health records, putting these two together to develop better polygenic risk scores. But this also means the issues, especially ethical issues, that have been identified with polygenic risk scores and with AI separately are confounded when the two are coming together. This is sometimes about represent representation and exclusion of certain groups, but it can also be about uh, access to certain health uh, services. I think it's also a question of managing expectations, because as I said, there are many expectations what technology will be able to do, especially in the medical field. I think that, um, a challenge is also, I mean, AI is not coming from, from nowhere. It is building on existing data sets, as Kaya mentioned before, uh, different kinds of data sets, and you need large amounts of data sets. So we are talking about big data here. And we also need to learn how to manage these big data sets, how to get access to it, that we can produce something, as mentioned earlier, would then benefit groups and um, protect vulnerable groups at the same time. So that's currently the, the challenges from our perspective. I'm sure AI developers would <laughs> respond differently to that. But this is, um, I guess, our job here as social scientists to, to keep the conversation, to keep the discourse going in all these aspects and uh, include the societal aspects in, in the conversations around uh, AI development. So the benefit from our perspective or where we see um, real benefits is like uh, to go to more interdisciplinary research because we we include societal groups that are coming with certain characteristics which like gender age socioeconomic backgrounds that's uh, demographic categories that are now used to train or to develop a technology but this comes with implications about the values and the context and why we choose certain categories as the relevant ones and what it then means Thank you.
I'm Isabel Vidin and I'm a researcher at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. And I think an LC expert is something trying to solve really complex issues within an unrealistic time period <laughs> and expecting to please everybody. <laughs> I've come to talk to Monica Kanao-Abadir, who is Senior Scientist for ELSI and Gender Equality and Diversity Specialist for BBMRI. Monica will be talking about why ELSI gets out into the wider research and life sciences community and why that matters. Hello, Monica. Hello. You aren't just holding annual events like this, but you're engaging more broadly, such as at conferences or via regularly hosted project-linked webinars. Actually, as a team, you recently hosted a session at the 4S conference. That's the Society for Social Studies of Science. And it was about artificial intelligence, health and knowledge. Tell us, why is it important that ELSI experts get out there and talk about ELSI? Um, well, it is very important for us to talk amongst ourselves uh, because we have very different backgrounds. So even within the ELSI community, we are all completely different. We are like sociologists, political scientists, philosophers, lawyers. So we come from very different backgrounds and we have very different opinions and also scopes of research and application of our knowledge. So we really need to talk to each other. So meeting uh, at conferences or symposia or wherever is really, really important for us. But it's also important to talk beyond our LC community and trying to uh, talk with partners from other disciplines, from projects like more medical experts, artificial intelligence developers, etc., to raise awareness of the importance of the LC issues and also to show that it's not only a checklist that we are just dealing with these ethical issues as okay or European Commission wants you to pay attention to this and that and this and that but to show them that we actually deal with a very wide range of possible topics that are relevant from a societal point of view as well so it is really important that we go to conferences that we go places that we are engaging with uh, patient organizations with partners in different projects because we have a lot to um, a lot to offer and a lot to learn from them as well that we can then apply in our in our work actually i have a follow-up question for that how do often you'll be working on large European projects as you've just mm -hmm. talked about um, and so you might be working with somebody who's a physicist mm -hmm. or a geneticist, for example, how do they respond to the really awkward, woolly, soupy world of Elsie? Uh, that's a very good question. Well, it depends, of course, but usually with curiosity, and it's mutual curiosity that happens there. Usually we just start by sitting down with people and just asking them, like, what do you do? Because we don't know what they do <laughs> as well. So we start there and then it's like, ah, oh, okay, because we do this and you do that. And then, ah, okay, that's interesting. And I mean, we deal with all these ethical societal aspects that are actually very also common or how to say challenges that are actually occurring to people as well. So then they are always 
always like, oh yeah, I saw a documentary once that that was about this bias and about this injustice and about this. So there's always something that you can find uh, where it's like, okay, now we found a common ground here. And it just happens in a conversation. So it's really important that we actually meet people and that we just sit down and like, okay, what do you do? This is what I do. Ah, that's interesting. That's really helpful because, I mean, it is a bit like weird dating, but you find a, a common ground and by doing so, you ex- you expand mm-hmm. the understanding of a topic in a much greater way yeah. than if it was just a single type of researcher. Definitely. Thank you for that. So in many ways, you have described some of the benefits for others, but there, there are other beneficiaries from your type of work. Can you describe them? I think that for us, the benefit is mutual and it has to come from a collaboration from the beginning and what we can um, give like in projects, for example, it has to come from an involvement of LC people from the very beginning. And what we can offer is actually the transformation of projects from the very beginning, because then if we also participate in the decision making and we don't only appear when there are problems and challenges, that that's usually when they call us like, oh my God, we have this uh, challenge, this problem. Uh, And it's like, well, we didn't actually know uh, how you reach this point so can you like we need to catch up but if we are involved from the beginning we can actually also transform that the reality of projects so that maybe some challenges never even occur so it is actually very beneficial for consortia and people to talk to us from the beginning so that we can even prevent or or we can at least learn from challenges that will happen anyway I mean we cannot prevent anything but if a challenge is there we can Uh, learn and also be more ready in the future if the challenge appears again. Monica, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. You'll be hearing from some of the ELSI experts from around the continent who are here to present on findings from their specialisms. Irene Schlunder is Senior Legal Expert and Ilaria Colusi is Data Protection Specialist for BBMRI. They've been working on an update on governance frameworks, specifically about the Code of Conduct for Health Research. Elaria, welcome. Can you summarise what this Code of Conduct is all about? What did your update say? Hello, thank you so much for being here. Um, Yes, the Code of Conduct for Health Research is an initiative that started some time ago and it is now uh, led by um, BBMRI Eric and uh, it aims to translate into a non-legalistic language, so in a lay language, the uh, provisions of the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, so the so-called Uh, GDPR, and to translate them into practice for health research communities. So uh, it is a sort of best practice that uh, does not aim to change the national legislations, but to clarify some concepts of the GDPR for uh, researchers, and uh, especially in the biomedical field and health research area. So it uh, it is a, a sort of, yeah, as I said, best practice that um, has some rules, some explanations, some practical examples in 
inspired by, by the GDPR. And we are working on this. We have drafted a lot of parts of it and we are now checking the content with some experts. So our update is that now we are really verifying if the content is in line with what the health community uh, needs and understands. And uh, then there will be a public consultation open for um, feedback from stakeholders. And possibly we will then submit it to the European Data Protection Board in order to have a, a European application and a transnational application. But uh, it is a long way to go, but uh, worth taking because there is a need of understanding what the GDPR says uh, in concrete terms, in practical terms uh, for health researchers. Ilaria, thank you for that. This is ongoing work and ties into major data harmonisation projects across Europe. Today, Irene, you talked about the EHDS project, which is the European Health Data Space, where you're trying to find an ethical and legal way through primary and secondary health data sharing. This is a really thorny issue and it ties into the work that you've already done around GDPR. But what are your predictions for sensitive data sharing and for GDPR this year? Wow. <laughs> Hello, everybody. So I'm a lawyer. I'm not the appropriate person <laughs> to have predictions. <laughs> but yeah, um, the, the relationship between EHDS and GDPR and our code of conduct is in my view quite open because the framework as it is now in the proposed regulation is um, set out in a quite high level way so it needs implementation by the member states and we even do not know at the moment um, if the text that we know will be adopted as is because it's now in parliament it's under revision negotiation and then it goes to the council so there might be changes, uh, so predictions are really, really difficult. As far as we can see, it's anyway worth to make progress with the Code of Conduct and the GDPR for our research community, because especially the relationship of EHGS with the existing research infrastructures is totally open. And, uh, and some very general terms and concepts under the GDPR under discussion will not be changed by EHGS. One example might be the concept of anonymization, pseudonymization, identifiability of data. So uh, a best practice in this respect is needed under the EHGS also. So let's see what lies ahead. <laughs> Can I just ask a follow-up question? And it may be that you both want to answer this. What are, what are going to be the biggest challenges around this over the next year? I think the biggest challenge always is to include the views and perspective of as many stakeholders as possible. This is the greatest effort. I think if just Ilaria and I would sit down and write the code, it could be done in four weeks. But this is not what we are going to do. What we need is acceptance among all the stakeholders. So the main effort is that we discuss every single step with a group of experts, then with a 
broader stakeholder audience and this takes time and effort but it's worth it because we have such a huge fragmentation under the GDPR. We have so many uh, variations of interpretations of basic concepts like anonymization, as I've already said, like controllership, like many, many open questions. And it would not make sense to add just another opinion. What makes sense is to find alignment agreement uh, about those concepts. And this is the, the core aim and effort and this is the biggest challenge in my view. Elaria, when you respond, can you just define who those stakeholders are? We talk about stakeholders a lot but not everyone listening might know who they are. Just a short comment on what Irene said. I think that uh, the main challenge is also to have a good communication because concepts are uh, mainly known and understood by lawyers, maybe, uh, and even among lawyers, uh, sometimes they are not so easily understood. But uh, the difficulty is to make them uh, comprehensible to the to the broader audience. So uh, with this, we come to, to your questions about the stakeholders. Stakeholders are many because uh, when we talk about health research we have to take into account that of course there are researchers on the one hand but there are also and especially the patients and not only the patients but the citizens in general uh, because health uh, concerns uh, us all um, this is not something that is affecting uh, sick people or diseased people because we are potentially all all of us are potentially patients or could be patients so of course when we draw a legislation or when we try to write a code of conduct or best practices, we have to take into account the addressees that are researchers in our case, for example, but we have also to take into account the possible implications that our uh, decisions or our proposals can have on patients and on, on citizens uh, in general. So the broader society is, of course, uh, to be taken into account. Alaria, Irene, thank you so much for your time. So my name is Anna Clairboyne and I'm the National Project Manager of the Research Infrastructure in Biobank Sweden. And well, I think an LC expert is probably someone who sits in a room behind a huge pile of books frowning and trying to find definitions for various very tricky topics. At least after listening in today, that's what it would be like. <laughs> Thanks for that, Anna. Anna, during the roundtable conversation earlier, you mentioned thinking about how biobanking is packaged and relates to participants and how we all hesitate to say donors now. Why does how we communicate about biobanking matter and what role does Elsie have in shaping that? Oh, that's a, that's a complex one. But to start with the most basic thing, biobanking builds on humans. I mean, biobanking, at least the biobanking that we do, I mean, usually during the national conferences and stuff, we hear from really brilliant people who work with, you know, endangered animals and stuff. But the biobanking that we do nationally is about humans in the end. We're trying to make people healthier and happier. 
And for, for, for that to actually be possible, we need to interact with humans. Uh, so a hurdle there is to explain to people what something that mostly goes on behind locked doors of a lab actually is. So I think that's the main hurdle because biobanking is so secret and it seems far more complex and complicated, I think, than it actually is. Which is why, of course, in Biobank Sweden, we try to do a lot of outreach activities. We have some films that really try to explain what biobanking is, like the, the path of the sample through the system and so on and so forth. So I think that's something we should all, all try to work on to make it understandable to, to the people who give the samples. But yeah, I mean, when, when all of the stock photos, uh, like I think I said during the meeting, like when all the stock photos are of, you know, these pink sample tubes, it's, yeah, it's, it just looks very strange. So I think that's really important for us to make it accessible because in the end, it's all about the people who provide the samples. So yeah, we should really try to include them in a way that, that makes them interested in participating. I think picking up on the, the humanness around biobanking is so important. And also something that you mentioned, which is related to the, the report that you've produced, yeah. is about accountability. Yeah. So at the end of research, not just telling everyone how you did it, but what the actual impact and outcomes was. Can you just summarise that point for, for people who are listening? Well, the impact of outcomes, I mean, there are, there are some facets of this. I mean, if you look at research uh, in general, uh, we had this wonderful panel or this wonderful sort of open discussion uh, at the European Biobank Conference in Antwerp. And it was sort of a patient-focused and researcher-focused discussion where it, it just became clear to me how much people who participate in biobanking actually want to know the outcomes because I hadn't thought about that to such a large extent until then. And people are really interested in knowing the outcomes. And sometimes when I talk to researchers, they don't really understand how important this is to to patients and to, to sample donors and sample providers or whatever we want to call them. Yeah, so that that's really fascinating. So I think there's, first of all, I think there's a divide in general. I mean, that we don't really understand each other in the different groups regarding what is important to the other groups. So that's one thing that we need to, to put up there and try to deal with. But if we look specifically at research that deals with patient engagement and involvement, um, it, it's so important to show why it's important and what the the outcomes can be. But I think we've dropped the ball on that to such a large extent because uh, people have been so enthusiastic working with this. And one thing in the report that we've produced is that we, you know, made lists of all of the different toolkits and or at least some of the different toolkits that are out there because there are so many toolkits and there are so many different you know, frameworks and structures that are suggested. So when you go out there, it's a jungle, which is why, yeah, which is why we have those um, hopefully helpful appendices at the end of the report where we have, you know, it's a, it's a list of explanations of common terms because everyone uses them differently. And, you know, also the, the lists of this and also lists of large reviews that look at many of the other uh, many of the other reports and, and research conclusions that people have. So yeah, uh, if you if you really want to get a good overview of a very complex field, leaf through to that. My name is Ulrike Feld. I'm professor of science and technology studies at the University of Vienna. In, I am uh, one of the principal investigators in the 
Austrian biobanking network, and we work specifically on questions of responsible research and innovation, uh, looking into aspects of values and participatory aspects of biobanking. Ulrika, thank you. I was watching you present earlier on the work that you've done with colleagues Lisa Maria Ferent and Barrett Wolf on engagements with and value assessments along with sample data journeys in biobanking. Can you give a sense of what your presentation was all about for people who are listening? I think very often biobanking, we either look at the side of patients and how we get their samples or data for research, or we look at the other side, so how researchers can actually work with biobanking. We try in the project to bring these two sides together in a way and to better understand the complexities of biobanking and how all these different actors actually have to come together to build biobanking in a sustainable manner. So in that sense, we look, for example, at the way how different actors around biobanking judge the value of a biobank and how they do that, how they experience biobanking and why they invest. And we try to show uh, also for the donors that biobanking is just not the moment where they say yes to something. So it's not reduced to the moment of informed consent but that they better understand that data and samples actually have to be made able to travel from their bodies to the labs, from the labs to the biobank, and from the biobank to very different locations where they can be used for research. And understanding that would kind of mean also being better able to assess whether or not I want to be part of that journey with my data and my sample, etc., And I think this could deliver us insights into how people actually, and on the basis of what they would be ready to become participants and to be actually full-fledged partners in that sense of uh, a biobanking project on the long term. Lots of parts of it were fascinating, such as even an understanding of what biobanking is, is still quite weak in many areas. Because this is about bringing um, potential partners or donors on board, how will you be communicating the results? We have not yet thought about that because we're actually struggling to get people to engage with us on a qualitative level because that means donating time. And so we have patients, but also with citizens, we have only so far a small number of interviews, but actually very often we just promise them to send back things to them because they enroll generally with emails, etc. And so they can then choose whether or not they are interested in kind of engaging more with it. Um, I think for them, uh, giving this information is also one way of kind of delegating sometimes a bit this kind of engagement work to us. I had that in one project explicitly where citizens just said, but you are there to do that, you know? You go there and talk to the scientists, etc., convince them that that is what we need, etc. So it's kind of interesting uh, to see that. And it's also important to realize that citizens are actually very capable to see that different people would have different positions on these things and that there is not one right position. And so everybody individually struggles with making sense of why they would go for, what they would like to have, etc. And then 
uh, I mean, even if they express values like uh, we would like to have control over certain things, etc., it's very difficult for them to express what they mean exactly by that and how they would want to come back on what they have donated, etc. So for me, it's important, this interview, to make it valuable for the interviewee in the sense of doing the interview in a way that they understand the story of a travel. And by interviewing them in that way, kind of taking them implicitly through the story of data and samples. And I think this is a takeaway maybe which allows them to differently look at biobanking. Because what we have seen actually is there is, after the IC, there is informed consent, there is a smokescreen kind of, and everything else happens after that. And they actually don't know what research means. They don't know what biobanking in that means. And we are trying through the questions to give a bit of an idea of what kind of work is involved and that this is not just giving samples or data on, but it means a lot of work that goes into it. It means making transparent what kind of profession that is, that is working there, etc. Because what they see is generally a doctor or they don't see the researcher very, or they don't see the doctor as a researcher, etc. So it's kind of interesting. And of course, when you look at the different groups of people that um, provide samples for research, it's very different if you ask patients with rare diseases, because they are generally a clear-cut group. They have a very clear understanding what their disease is, and they are focused on that. And so they have a much closer interaction with medical people and a better understanding what they could gain from giving it. But a person that does not have really any specific health issue or so is not so clear about why they should donate and, and where does that go and who needs it. But we need also these people. We need control groups. We need comparative things. So in that sense, it's kind of important to get a diverse group of people on board in order to build biobanking in a way that also delivers on the scientific and research ground. Ulrika, thank you. I thought the, the, the idea of telling the, the story of the sample it was really powerful. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do next. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm speaking to Gillian Martin from Malta, and you spoke yesterday about Dwana. You presented about a blockchain solution, or you're going to describe it in a minute, for dynamic consent. Can you describe what that's all about? So in fact, Dwana is more than just focusing on dynamic consent. It's an actual portal which we've created at the Center for Biomedical Sciences at the University of Malta to enhance the participation and the process of participation in, in research and biobanking. Dwarna is the, the interface to bring together researchers, participants, clinicians, scientists. And part of one of the most important steps in participating in research is the, is the consenting process, where you actually give your consent to, to give your sample and for it to be used in research. And dynamic consent is one form 
of doing this, where the participant remains in contact via the portal with the, with the center for research, and the participant might update or change that consenting status. So they might suddenly decide they'd rather not take part, and so they'll be able to withdraw, or they'd rather have more control about which research programs their samples are used for. So they might want to be informed before their sample is used in another research program, and they're told, all about the program, they're given enough information to make an informed decision and then give consent over the portal for their sample to be used in that new research program. That puts a lot more power into the participant's hand, but it also allows for further research to take place. Mm -hmm. What's been the reaction to the Duana project? Well, it does, and that's the aim. The aim is to empower the participants, and the aim is also to make more efficient use of samples. Rather than samples being stored just for one particular project, it's actually more ethical for it to be used to its full potential. I'll be able to answer your second question in a few months down the line, because we are about to launch Dwarna, so it's a bit early to comment on that now. So actually, my, my other question I want to ask you is, is what's the, the LC issue that's going to consume you this year? And partly it will be Dwarna, but mm-hmm. anything else? I think it's Dwarna, but what is Dwarna all about? It's all about engagement. It's all about putting our message out there to the public, the Maltese public. We know that Maltese general public know very little about biobanking, what it's all about. So that is probably going to be uh, top of my agenda. Gillian, thank you so much. Over this visit to the LC annual meeting, you've met ethical, legal and societal experts from around Europe who are helping to shape biobanking research and innovation. They've explained why LC matters and the impact that their interdisciplinary and international approach makes in the wider research landscape. We regularly share papers and reports from our LC experts via the BBMRI ERIC newsletter. You can sign up to that on our website, which is www.bbmri-eric.eu. You will find the LC knowledge base and help desk are on the website too. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with interested friends and colleagues and leave us a review on whichever platform you listened via. It really helps us reach new listeners. Watch out for our next podcast episode via our at BBMRI Eric socials on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.